Hey, so um, I really love this podcast, but there's a there's a lot of problems that I have, and you're gonna hear about them. Oh, that's a not that great a podcast title, Dan. No, that's not. I mean, it is it is kind of modeling. Have you seen these Japanese light novels? The way they're titling these these oh, days. Oh yeah, light novels like they're half title. Yeah, the, the title is something like. I had eggs for breakfast, and now, suddenly, my boyfriend hates me because they have come to life in my ears, right? Like, <laughs> They're very descriptive, Yes, but they're very long. So maybe that podcast title will work for maybe us. Maybe that podcast title will work. What are we, we going to be complaining about today? Well, I think it would be a good idea to complain about the weird feedback that authors tend to get. And I want to say up front... Because the reason I've been thinking about this is a mutual friend of ours, Charlie Holmberg. Ah, Charlie. She sometimes shares with me the super obnoxious emails that she gets. And I strongly suspect and wholeheartedly believe that women authors get a lot more of this kind of garbage than men do. I agree with you, having seen just a little bit of how it goes. But also, I do think it is... The genre you're writing in mm-hmm. does influence it also. I think that if you're writing lots of romance, you get different feedback than if you're not. Yeah. And certainly. Charlie does write romantic fiction quite a bit. It's yeah. sci-fi fantasy, but often a strong romance through line. I can definitely say that the YA stuff that I write gets a lot more of this unwanted constructive feedback than the thrillers. Explain what you mean by that. Unwanted constructive feedback. And so this has been a long and ongoing kind of quandary for me because there is a big part of me that genuinely doesn't care what people think of my books, right? Right. Like I am writing them for myself. You clearly liked it enough to buy it. We have both benefited from this. I don't need to hear about all the things you disliked. And... I have seen authors, I remember several years ago, there was an author who was like, that's crazy. We need to have good customer service as authors. We need to respond to our reviews. I don't believe that that's true. Huh. You've got an interesting perspective on this. I want to I hear more. I, my perspective is slightly different, but more okay. conventional. Right? Okay. So continue. Yeah. And so I understand that anything I am putting out into the world is inviting a response right? Yeah. That's the reason that I haven't used Facebook in like four years, because anything I say there, people are going to respond to, and then I'm going to be in a conversation. I don't want to be in a conversation. I just want to say stuff, which is why Twitter works a little better for me. Clearly, there's the the possibility of response, but it's less of a conversational format. And books, yeah, people will send emails and say, oh, well, here's all the proofing errors I found. Or here, you're misusing this word, or you got this technology wrong. The way you kind of pitched this at the beginning when we were talking before the episode started was you said Mm -hmm. the phrase, I really love your books, but here is everything I hate about them. Yeah. So it's the emails you get that are one line of I love your works followed by 20 lines of what I don't like about them, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. And is that kind of what you're talking about? And that's kind of what I'm talking about. You're not talking about the hate mail. No, if someone just genuinely hates it, Mm -hmm. then they are welcome to hate it, and that's fine. You know, I don't know why you would tag me in your hate-filled review or why you would email it to me directly. That's just kind of a jerky thing to do. But you're welcome to go off on your own amongst your friends and family and hate it as vocally as you want. That's what it's for. 
But the ones that blow my mind are the ones that do have that kind of 80 20 mm-hmm. balance of this is great, this is wonderful, five stars, but it let me lay into it for all these other reasons. Relates a little bit to what we talked about last time the whole perfect narrative thing. So, where I differ from you and what you have said is I don't write for myself. Okay. So, if I wrote for myself, I wouldn't release the books. And I can say that with confidence because I do not need the money from the books in order to survive, right? Mm -hmm. My books have made me financially independent and my investments are such that I never have to write another word ever. Yeah. And, but I am a storyteller. I don't storytell without an audience. Mm -hmm. I am not really interested in talking to an empty room. And I do think that I would be writing my stories if nobody read them but my friends and family. Mm -hmm. But if no one were reading my stories at all, I don't know if I would. Maybe I would. Well, and I don't think that we disagree on that. Even in your description, you're still writing because you love it. There's still definitely a degree of self-interest in there. Of this is what I love to do, and this is what I'm going to do. You choose your topics because you like them. You definitely, and so do I, craft them in such a way that other people, ideally, will like them as well. But there's a reason you're writing epic fantasy instead of, like, motorcycle repair manuals. Yes, absolutely. And I do love writing. I mean, I've talked before. This is another repeat from my class. But one of the biggest, most important moments to my career was when I decided to stop caring whether the books were going to get puffed up. Or Stop caring is the wrong term. Like, I had a moment later in my unpublished career where I was getting lots of rejections. And the time was ticking down, right? I Mm -hmm. had one year left in my master's degree. I had picked a master's degree as the delaying tactic, not because I could do anything with it. And the first day I went to my master's degree, the professor got up. This was Lance. I don't know if you know Lance Larson. Poet laureate of Utah for many years. I don't think he is currently. They rotate that title every five years or so, but was an excellent teacher and still at BYU. And if you get a chance to take a class from Lance, you should, because he really knows his stuff about poetry. He and I would go the rounds sometimes about what the best epic fantasy was, because he did think it was 100 Years of Solitude, hearkening back to last okay. week. But regardless, Lance was then the graduate student advisor. He got up and he said, here's all the stuff you're going to need to do in order to become a professor of English. And he listed it all off. And it was like, you know, be on these journals, do all of this research, become an assistant to a professor, make sure, you know, you're doing all of this stuff. And I realized I can't do any of that and still write books. And Mm -hmm. so I knew my graduate program was not a path to becoming a professor. And I focused on my storytelling. But then a year in, tons of rejections. I had tried for a few years to write like George Martin. Were you there? When I hit up, who was it? It was uh, editor at Del Rey. I want to say it was Steve Saffel at a convention. It was a, one of the cons that we were going to. Uh, yeah. And I yeah. said, you know. I remember him sitting the two of us down yeah. and giving us a really fantastic talk. He was great, but I said, we actually asked to send him stuff, and he said no. He's like, I won't take a look at any agent submissions. I'm like, all right, what should I be doing to you know, make it in this market? He said, have you read the prologue of Game of Thrones? Do that. And he was to a level right, right? Mm -hmm. Because the people who broke out just before us, even kind of during our time, were all grimdark. That's what everyone was hunting for. But I tried writing it and I was terrible at it. I remember reading 
Yeah. I think. I don't know if you actually shared your grimdark stuff. Yeah, they were bad. It was called Mistborn. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was totally different, but it, it was still had the mist cloaks yeah. and it, yeah. The magic system was great. But anyway, I had written that and it had gotten rejected. And I'm like, all right, they don't want what I want because all of my epic fantasies got rejected. They don't want me trying to write George R. Martin. Plus, I kind of hated writing that book anyway. So why don't I just give up? And I decided, no, I'm going to keep writing. I love this too much. I'm just going to keep going. And I'm going to write the stories I want to write. That experiment in chasing the market was a bad idea. And I'm just going to go forward. And that's when I started working on Way of Kings. But it was so liberating to, as you kind of put earlier, say, I don't care what you think. There's Mm -hmm. a part of me that doesn't. Because I have been unchained from having to worry about that. Because I had that moment of crisis and decided I would keep going no matter what. Yeah. So I'm liberated from having to worry. You know, I had a very similar moment actually later in my career post-publication where after some convention, I went out to dinner with you, James Dashner, and Brandon Mull. Yeah. Yep. Three of, if not the three best-selling authors in the state. And I was sitting here on my very lower mid-list kind of nonsense that I was putting out, you know, which is still to this day paying, you know, for my children to eat food. You write the best nonsense. (laughs) Let's be honest. (laughs) But something about the conversation you were having just really hit home to me how much better selling all of you were. I didn't go home and think, well, I'm a terrible author. I went home and thought, my level of success is not even in the same ballpark as those three. What am I doing? I'm wasting my time. And had that moment, that very liberating moment you're talking about. And it hit because I started thinking, well, I guess I need to start applying for jobs and go back to real work. And now that I'm not you know, doing this full time, I'll actually have some free time again. What am I going to do in my free time? And the only answer I could think of was write books. And I thought, well, okay, I guess... I'm not doing this because I want to make money or get rich or do anything. I'm doing this because I love it. Well, all right. And then I was right back on board and writing more books and have been happy ever since. One difference, though, is I do pay a lot of attention to what people are saying in my core fandom about my books. Mm -hmm. And this is in part because the Cosmere as a whole, I am, I'm not changing. Like, it's madness to try to change you know, what you're doing too much based on audience feedback. Yeah. But I need to know if the ideas I am trying to present are connecting because I'm doing them across 20 years. And mm-hmm. if they're not connecting in the early books, I need to make them connect in the middle books or the later books just are not going to function, right? Yeah. And so I do look at feedback and things from like the core fans and when people email me and stuff like that in a different way than you might because... I don't know. I mean, the whole 20 to 30 year plan of the Cosmere, you know, I've already done like 15, so 17, so the 20 or 30 more years of the Mm -hmm. Cosmere, it's going to require me to course correct based on audience reactions. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I I mean, John Cleaver did eventually balloon into six books because I wrote a second trilogy for it. But for the most part, the stuff that I have written thus far has been very one and done, very... You know, thrillers are fast-paced, and you read them, and and then you you move on. Speaking aside, how did you not get in on this? Isn't YA thriller like the thing now? Weren't they? Isn't that like? I have submitted a lot of YA thrillers 
and I don't know what happened there. You're a better writer than than you know. I'm not going to name any names, but it became the thing like two or three years ago, and I didn't realize it because I wasn't writing. Yeah, YA went through a huge shift after I got big in YA. Modern YA is mostly standalones. Mm-hmm. It's mostly non-genre, by which I mean non non sci-fi fantasy. It's not sci-fi, sci-fi fantasy. fantasy. Thriller is still a genre, definitely. Yes. And romance is still a genre, and those are still big also. And for the most part, I suspect that uh, it's because every idea that I keep coming up with has got a monster in it. I keep coming back to supernatural things just because that's what I want to write. I mean, I do the same thing, right? I tried to yeah. write thrillers, and it turned out to be a, you know, the, the Stephen Leeds books, which are basically fantasy mm-hmm. and science fiction. I do time. have one straight thriller, which mm-hmm. is Ghost Station, which is pure, no science fiction, no fantasy, no monsters, no no anything, but it's historical. And so it still has that extra flavor in there. I think writing just a pure modern thriller with no other elements wouldn't be nearly as interesting to me mm. unless it was about people stealing maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> so feedback. One of the things that I kind of want to talk about, you're like, well, I think I can only say one sentence on this, was authors responding to feedback. So it's different from getting this, you know, when you get these emails, I assume you just don't write anything back. Well, let me tell you one story where I did. Okay. Okay. Because, and I've told you this story before, when the second book came out, second John Cleaver book, Mr. Monster, which is the darkest one. Yes, that's the one with the cat for people who are that's, trying to remember. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the, the most dismal one. When that book came out, I got a piece of fan mail, which I later found out came from a high school kid because he and I corresponded a few more times. And he sent one of those classic kind of 80-20 split emails, which was, I love this book. It's one of the most well-written things I've ever seen. It was fantastic. It makes me want to be a writer. But, and then the line was, and I can still quote this verbatim, the only possible audience for this book is Satan and Saddam Hussein. Ooh, yes. Uh, Because it was a really grim horror novel in which awful things happened to good people. Right. I mean, and now doesn't even make that. And Stalin, that's that's pretty... Uh, yeah. Know. I mean, Hitler has to be in that group, right? I don't I mean, know. Maybe, maybe he... I don't know. Yeah, okay. Satan and Saddam Hussein. Maybe because they just had S's in them. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, the very next email in my inbox was from one of the local newspapers saying that the third book in the series had just won the Reader's Choice Award for Novel of the Year. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote back to this kid and said, oh, hey, guess what? Satan and Saddam Hussein voted this year and sent him the link. And that was like one of the only times I have directly responded to criticism. And in hindsight, that was a little more aggressive than I would ever be today. Yeah, that's a, that's that's daring. Because one of the reasons that I wanted to bring this up is it's kind of a thing that goes around in the community should you respond to reviews or not as an author? And the general consensus is no. Yeah. Don't. Just don't. And there is lots of wisdom in that because when an author responds and it doesn't make any headlines, I'm sure it happens all the time, right? No one pays any attention to it. But when an author responds and it is poorly constructed... The internet loves a whipping boy. 
Mm -hmm. loves somebody to be the person to make fun of for the day. And anything you do that seems like you are inviting that has a percentage chance of drawing that attention and ire. And the truth is, most of the time, this is not going to have any sort of impact, relevant impact on your career. Depends on what we're talking about. Like if you are being racist or misogynistic or things, then yeah, it could. But most of the time, yeah. it's just you're being overly defensive and in ways that just are not very productive. But the mental and emotional toll it will probably take on you will be enormous. And if you are responding, it's because someone got under your skin. And so by its nature, you are the type that then drawing that much more attention is going to be very bad for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you can't handle not responding to one bad review, you are really going to hate the deluge that falls on you afterwards. Yeah. When people pick this up and say, oh, look at this entitled author who freaks out and makes fun of their readers, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We're not going to mention the author's name, but one of the reasons this came up is that there is an author who was doing this recently, last couple of months, and responding to a lot of critics in a way that felt very high and mighty. And there was a core kernel of, of something interesting and worth pointing out in this person's kind of diatribes. And it got overshadowed by the the comments and the drama and these sorts of things. Yeah. But the the kernel they're pointing out is it's really unfair that Goodreads doesn't have half steps because people are responding to my book by saying, this is a four and a half star book. I'm rating it four stars because there's no half step on yeah. Goodreads. And the author's basically worded poorly review was maybe could you round up to five that'd be really nice please mm -hmm. but they didn't necessarily yeah and the thing is way. if someone comes out and says hey thank you so much for this review mm -hmm. i'm so glad that you would give it four and a half stars if you round it up instead of down that would help me a lot yes that's what the author is saying in yeah, essence but it comes across as yep. how dare you not give me five stars you yep. and it really reads that way and this author seems to be one of those that really enjoys drama. And so they are poking the hornet's nest kind of on purpose. And we have friends who do this. And mm -hmm. it is fun for some people. I don't think this person is having a necessarily bad time of this drama. But it's reminded me of this thing where it's probably just a bad idea to respond. But there's a part of me that's like, it is kind of sad that it's a bad idea to respond because there is no place to have this kind of discussion with an author. Granted, the author probably shouldn't be getting that granular, you know, mm -hmm. like the parasocial nature of relationships on the internet is already kind of dangerous and weird. But there are times where people have had criticisms of my books that I don't think are valid. We go back you yeah. know, an episode or so whenever we were talking about the idea that I'm like, here's what I consider of these two things. One that I'm like, yep, I did this wrong. Let's talk about what I did wrong because it'll help everyone be a better writer. Mm -hmm. Here's one that I don't think I did wrong. Let's talk about why I don't think I did it wrong. Because again, I think it will be illustrative of the writing process and it might be interesting for people to talk about, but it's almost impossible to have that conversation without sounding defensive. Mm -hmm. and argumentative and like that you are beyond criticism yeah the few times that i have been able to kind of pull out negative reviews have been when they are obviously mockable 
right? Mm-hmm. Like if somebody has a well-thought-out criticism, whether I agree with it or not, I am not going to touch it. But one of my favorite reviews I've ever gotten, if you go to Amazon and look up the one-star reviews of I Am Not a Serial Killer, pretty much across the board, their complaint is, I didn't think this had magic in it, and it does. This is terrible. And that doesn't mean that they hated the book. It means that they hated the genre and kind of felt tricked into reading it. And that's on its face, that's a valid criticism entirely. It was our main criticism of the book and writing group, as I recall, saying we're worried, not that we all liked it when it turned out to be magical, but we all knew that writing enough to be like, I think people are going to feel tricked. And so one of my very favorite reviews is one that says, this was incredibly well-written. This was one of my favorite novels. And then in chapter seven, a monster shows up. I don't read fantasy because I don't like talking animals. And there's no talking animals in it, but just that idea that as soon as something includes fantasy or horror, it is for children. Yeah. Irks me, but. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's this other issue here though, that part of the reason it's so easy to pile on the author's in these examples is it is hard to respond to a review without punching down. Yeah. Particularly reviews just by anonymous people on the internet, right? Even an author who is not a mega bestseller has a lot louder of a mega horn than someone who doesn't. And it can be just a bad idea to draw attention to things. Like, you know, I've had this experience where I've had to be careful not to mention people or things because just by sheer nature of human beings being human beings, if you draw 100,000 eyes to something, a certain percentage of those people are going to be awful and are just going to ruin the experience for everyone. Yeah. That idea of punching down is one of the big reasons that I don't respond to criticism because first, I don't want to seem petulant. I also don't want to seem like a bully. If somebody much bigger than me mm-hmm. attacked my book, yeah, like Charlene Harris, for example, she loved the first serial killer book. Mm-hmm. If she had come out instead and said, oh, this is terrible, I would have felt entirely justified making a joke about that on Twitter and saying, right. you know, Charlene is completely wrong about this and you should not trust her opinion on books. Like that would not have landed well with her fans, but I would have felt confident making the joke well here's a good example of that i recommend that everyone read terry pratchett's editorial i believe it's in the guardian but it could be have been a different newspaper about jk rowling have you read this one i have not so jk rowling there's this thing that happens that gets under the skin of a lot of us in the community sci-fi fantasy writers and fans where certain writers do not consider themselves fantasy writers fantasy novelists, despite their books being fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I think we overreact a little to this, but it is a sticking point. It is something like, you know, this is why, not to speak too long, you know, he's passed away and whatnot, but when Goodkind in the early 2000s was talking about not being a fantasy novelist, it's why it went over so poorly is because we're like, oh, you think you're too good for being a fantasy novelist. Well, J.K. Rowling, someone asked her if she read fantasy, and she made some comments along the lines of this. Well, I don't really consider myself a 
a novelist of fantasy literature. I just write good stories. That sort of sentiment, right? Yeah. Which pops out quite Which a bit. Which we've heard so many times. Yes. Unfortunately, you know, Margaret Atwood has been like that at times, though she was good friends with Ursula Le Guin, and I believe Ursula persuaded her to change the way that she spoke about some of these things and whatnot. I still want to write a story about squids in space. Yes. Just because mm-hmm. of her famous quote about science fiction. But J.K. Rowling said one of these, and Terry Pratchett being the just treasure that he uh, was, wrote a nice long editorial to the number one best-selling fantasy novelist from the number two best-selling fantasy novelist in England. Mm -hmm. And it is delightful. And it's a good example of, you know what, there aren't a lot of people that Terry Pratchett could punch up at. But he took that opportunity to speak for all of us in a way that I really appreciate. And, you know, taking on the Potterheads is... Not an inconsequential thing to have done during that time. So, good for you. Good for you, Terry Pratchett. Sir Terry Pratchett. I'm in the middle of reading Going Postal right now, by Uh, the way. (laughs) You've been recommending that forever. Mm. I kind of parcel out my Mm. Pratchett. Well, we're not going to ever get more. In a measured way, because I know I'll eventually run out. And so I'm reading Going Postal. It is, I think, almost unquestionably the best Pratchett I've ever read. It's so good. I mean, Night Watch, it's hard to pick between it and Night Watch, but it will... See, as much as I love the Vimes books, if there's one I like more than Going Postal, it's Tiffany Aching. Uh Uh-huh. Because I love those, but they are... Absolutely. Man, Going Postal. I wish I could read it again for the first time. (laughs) But let's talk about weird feedback we've gotten. Weird Yeah, have you gotten weird feedback? So this one's less weird, but it'll, it'll kick us into it. One of my favorite things and I say that with the favoriting quotes, right, Mm -hmm. is how readers tend to see their experience with the story as being the only valid one. And, you know, there is something to be said here. Like, I write my books, and I don't believe my books are finished until they're read. I've said this before. The reader gets to interpret the book the way that they want to. I write the script, you make the movie in your head. Mm -hmm. The books, in that way, I think do belong to the audience. I am different from a lot of writers in this regard in that if I did not want to give them away, I wouldn't publish them. When I'm putting the book out there, I'm giving it to the audience. And when, when you read one of my books, you have line item veto power. You can cross out a line and say, no, it didn't happen in my canon. Mm -hmm. And I accept that as your canon. And I think you are perfectly valid in doing that. But it's when I get the emails, and I got two on the same day, and I shared them around the company, and this is kind of endemic of what happens. The first one was, it was when the sample chapters of one of the Stormlight books were going out. I think it might have been Oathbringer, but it might have been Words of Radiance. Probably were. Anyway, sample chapters were going up on websites. People were reading them and sending me emails and responding. And I got one because in a given this given chapter, there had been two characters who it had embraced in a very loving way, shall we say. And the male character noticed certain parts of the female character's anatomy. We we're in his viewpoint. Okay. These are, I believe, married individuals. <laughs> it was described in a... I mean, a pretty, nothing I write gets to, it was more explicit than I normally get, but to call it explicit would make the rest of the fantasy community laugh. Yeah. Right? 
But, you know, it's a married couple embracing. So I get an email from someone, and I don't know if you've gotten these, someone who was probably religious and maybe from our same culture, but maybe not. But it was the, you are better than this, Brandon, email, right? The, I've gotten a couple of those. The yeah. Satan and Saddam Hussein email was definitely mm-hmm. in that same yeah. family. The, you are supposed to represent something better than this, and you have put this sleaze in your book, and I am very disappointed in you. And, you know, the next email was from someone who said, and I kid you not, these were right back to back. Were you around at this time, Adam? Did you see these two? It's ringing a bell, but you've received several emails like this before. The next one said, Brandon, I love your books, but the way that you treat intimacy is so, so bothersome to me because you don't go nearly far enough and it's distracting because human beings do not respond in such a reserved way as your characters. And the fact that you don't put sex scenes in the books when it's a natural part of so many people's lives is really distracting to me. And mm-hmm. I would encourage and urge you to stop being so prudish and write the books the way that they should be written. Was this the third Mistborn book? No, the third Mistborn book does... I know there was a tent scene with there Vin was a and tent uh, scene. what's yes. his name. Yes, no, this I think was the third Stormlight. We, I do have one in the third Mistborn book too, but again, so tame yeah. as to be, you know, the third Mistborn book, it is also a married couple, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the sixth Mistborn book has the non-married couple having some fun, but I don't get as many emails about that one because people just expect Wayne to be Wayne, I suppose. I don't know why I don't get emails about that one. I get emails <laughs> about this other one, which is far less explicit, but okay. the contrast there. And I don't think either of these writers has a bad point. I think the second email author explained their point way better. And I kind of empathize with it more, Mm -hmm. right? Because they just obviously, I think, were an older person and understood how to explain their idea. And just said, you know, this is distracting for me in the books. Where the first one was kind of taking the shame, shame, wiggle the finger at you, which is not a great way to provoke change. But, yeah. yeah, given the nature of that, I would definitely put money on them being from our same religion. Mm-hmm. And I actually do feel a lot of pressure, and it's very unspoken pressure. Yes, no one has ever come to me and explicitly said, "You need to be a you know a paragon of virtue." Mm-hmm. Maybe it's pressure I'm putting on myself to be a good representative of my own belief system. Yeah, and so Ghost Station, for example, mm-hmm. does have the first time that I have put. Oh, these two characters are very obviously having sex. Mm-hmm. It fades to black before that happens. But there's two scenes in the book where you know that it's happening. No, they're mm-hmm. not married. Yes, they were drinking. Like all these things that I personally don't believe in and wouldn't do, but these characters would. I haven't gotten any feedback on that mm. because no one's ever read Ghost Station because <laughs> it's been such a low profile book. But I kind of do feel that. Like I need to make sure that I am kind of being an example of my own beliefs for people. Right. But I don't know. This is getting off on another yeah, we're getting weird tangent. Very into the weeds, but... Brandon and Dan, in the weeds. <laughs> so I feel that one of my mandates as a storyteller is to represent life. And yes. to depict people who have different ethics and belief systems of mine who are good people is very important to me. Because I feel like I have certain beliefs and certain, you know, 
things that I uphold and whatnot, I would want people to look at me and say, because he hopes that people will respect his beliefs and his worldviews, that I can understand why he will respect other people's beliefs and worldviews. And when I'm writing in my books, I am focused more on who is this person and what would they realistically do? Uh, because depicting the world and depicting people the way they want to be represented is essential to my storytelling art and to my fundamental morality as a human being. Yeah. And that means that people are going to do things that I wouldn't do. But you know what? I'm also not going to be on a battlefield swinging a giant sword chopping people in half. I am much more in person a pacifist than you might assume from my books. I also really like a good action scene. And so, I don't know. This has never been a thing that I look at as a tension in my life. It is me looking at the stories and saying, you know, there are certain things I don't do as a writer, but that's where my line is. My line is different from where my character's lines are, though. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, and I think it also, maybe this is an entirely different tangent, Mm -hmm. but it's something very, very American for me to be completely fine writing six books about murderers Mm -hmm. and then feeling kind of weird about putting two sex scenes into a single book. Can I say, though, I respond against people who were like, that's hypocrisy. I'm not saying it's hypocrisy. Yeah. Nope. I just a very but American a, culture. It is a very American culture. People like to point this out on the internet as if they've got some big gotcha. Yeah. Right? It's mm-hmm. some big gotcha. But this is maybe getting too into religious stuff. But I am commanded by the Ten Commandments to not kill. Mm-hmm. So I don't do that. I don't think I do it anyway. But, you know, that's a fundamental tenet of my religion. Yeah. Watching people kill each other not forbidden by my religion. It happens in the scriptures quite a bit. And you know what? There is no rule about not playing Doom and ripping apart (laughs) digital demons. I'm not killing anybody. And I don't think the arguments that video games or media cause that sort of behavior hold up to any rigorous scientific They never have in any study. And so I don't think there's a problem with that at all. What am I commanded by the New Testament? Not to look at a woman and lust upon her. That mm-hmm. is literally in there from Jesus Christ himself. Yeah. Right? And so the depictions of sexuality in media are a different beast entirely if you are... You know, yeah. I had never thought of it in those terms. Yeah. But interpreted that way, it's absolutely true that kind of Christian religions do treat depictions of violence very differently from depictions of sex And I think justifiably so. I think there's an argument the other direction, totally. I'm just pointing out there Mm -hmm. is an argument there. Yeah, and I think for me, I mean, now that you've pointed that out, I'm going to be thinking about it for a long time. But for me, it's mostly just, you know, I was raised in a culture where one thing was okay and one thing was not. And so that kind of is just reflected in what I write Mm. and what I worry about. Mm -hmm. Living in Germany, they clearly have different things bother them and for different reasons. Yes. Depictions of violence are generally like, I remember that The Little Mermaid was censored in certain European countries where the ship stabs Ursula because they Mm -hmm. said, this is not okay by our rating systems if you want the general audience rating. Yeah. 
And in hindsight, I think it's astonishing that we were all just cool with it. Yes. In this little kid show to watch a woman get impaled by a giant stick. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, in my household, if I play a video game, then my kids are allowed to play it. As long as it's not going to cause them nightmares. Mm -hmm. Like, I am on record as loving the new Doom. I keep bringing it up. The Doom reboot. Okay. My 11-year-old. I'm like, yeah, you can totally play Doom. If I'm playing Doom, you can play Doom. It's not going to give you nightmares. And I have a very, I suppose, particularly among our culture. Among our culture, we are both more liberal about these sorts of things than I think a lot of our yes. contemporaries. Than most other people in our state. But I think that's a thing that I know would horrify. Like, my wife still has a problem with it. I'm like, mm. yeah, but, I mean... Taking a chainsaw to demons, they're digital demons. He knows they're digital demons. There is no proof at all that this is going to turn him into a psychopath. He <laughs> likes it. He thinks it's funny. So there are going to be limits there because I do think little, little kids. Mm -hmm. But my 11-year-old, any movie that I would watch, I would probably let him watch if he wanted to. He's the type of person that when he watches a movie and something graphic happens, he says, Dad, how'd they do that? Is that ketchup? Like, that's his response. Mm -hmm. That's a kid. It's totally fine playing Doom. Everyone knows their kids' parents in a different way, but I'm a little odd in that regard, right? Like, we have all played through Halo, which technically has an M rating on it. I have no idea why. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to play Halo with my kids. This is something I enjoy. You know, one of the things that I have learned from audience feedback mm -hmm. to approach our ostensible topic for this episode, mm. you know, writing six books about a 15-year-old sociopath. Yes. Different people all have different levels, different thresholds of what is acceptable. And children in particular are incredibly good, I would say better than most adults, at policing their own media intake. Yeah, I would agree. My 12-year-old, he loves a lot of stuff. He loves action movies. He loves excitement stuff. Zombies are something he cannot handle. Mm -hmm. And whether it is, you know, the visuals or the blood or the corpses or whatever it is about a zombie movie, he just is not down for it and will not watch it. And he's very good at knowing what is going to cause him problems and what is not. Mm -mm. And yeah. I hear this all the time from parents, from kids. People will ask me, you know, how old should someone be before they read I'm Not a Serial Killer? And really, that just comes down to you and the kid, right? Yeah. You you know your kid better than I do. I've had kids as young as 11 read it and tell me they love it. I've had people older than I am get halfway through and then throw it in the garbage and then write me an email about how they threw it in the garbage because why am I writing this kind of horrible stuff? And people are better than we give them credit for mm -hmm. at knowing where their own limits are. Yeah, and I I think one of the things that we can take away from this perhaps, is on this topic and basically the whole topic this episode is this idea that, you know what, different people like different things, have different thresholds, understand, interpret things different ways, and interacting with a piece of art, part of the fun of it is that you get to have your reaction to it. And this mm -hmm. is what I love about writing over other forms of media. I mean, I am a big movie buff. I absolutely love movies. But a book is an little more unfinished even a finished book than a movie because you get to add so much to it and as a reader that created a relationship between me and books that me and films just had a different relationship to mm -hmm. each other there's some prepositions in there but the <laughs> the idea that i get to imagine what this character looks like gives a participatory angle to fiction 
that I just love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want to get your emails. I want to hear what your particular, <laughs> you know, interpretation of this was. And I understand if you can't hold yourself back to mention the things that you thought were the flaws in it. Totally get that. Totally understand that. I'm not going to respond to those because it does feel like to me those I love this book, but are a bit of a you have to be in the right mindset as an author to take feedback. At least I do. Meaning I need to be in the I have prepared myself for this feedback and have braced myself to accept it and to take it constructively. And that's part of the point of Beta Reads and Writing Group for me. Well, and I'm going to say also, and we clearly disagree on this, and that's Mm -hmm. totally fine. I think that's one of the main purposes of something like Goodreads. Mm. Like if I am looking for criticism, I know where to find it. Yes. If I want to know if a certain character landed or if people had problems with some aspect of a book, I know where I can go and find that. Don't put it in my inbox because mm. then I have to see it whether I'm ready for it or not. Yeah, and that's the problem. Like I don't read fan mail unless I'm ready for it. Unless I am ready to get punched in the face. Mm-hmm. I don't open my fan mail, which I used to read all of my fan mail and I don't anymore. I don't know what a website says right now. We may, we probably have to update that, right? <laughs> I think a, a few years ago I had you guys update yeah. it because I no longer do. I get yeah. too much. I cannot read all the feedback and I have to put myself in that mindset of if there's some criticism here, I got some good criticism in an email the other day and I'm like, that is legit. That's going to help me be a better writer. Mm-hmm. But if I hadn't been in the mindset for that, that might've been it for the writing for, you know, I could totally see myself opening that up an hour before my writing session is done for the day and it kicking me in the face and distracting me to the point that I'm just like, it's not worth continuing right now. Yeah. And so it's, it's rough. Mm-hmm. So there you go, dear listeners. Send Brandon your useful feedback. Don't send me any. Send me your feedback on Dan's books. Yeah. If you <laughs> really loved my book, except for that one part, let Brandon know. And I probably won't read it because I don't read a lot of my fan mail anymore. But let, Adam let Brandon's might. assistants know. In fact, while we're at it, if you've got a problem with Charlie Holmberg's books, oh yeah, send that to Brandon's assistants yeah. too. Don't send it to her. We need to start just a service where we can just manage everybody's incoming fan mail. I can't even manage mine. Come on. We just hire somebody whose their whole job is to sit there all day and read everyone's incoming mail, forward the ones they think will be useful, Mm. forward all the just purely praiseworthy ones. To each other. Be like, here, I'm I'm sending this to Brandon to let people know how much people love Dan's book. (laughs) Clearly, that's what I mean. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intentionally Blank. You can join the discussion and vote for your favorite podcast title at r Sanderson. Produced by Adam Horn, sound engineering and editing by Daniel Thompson.